Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's Banking Editor. Joining me in the studio is Emma Dunkley, our Retail Banking Correspondent. From Moscow, we'll be hearing from Max Seddon, our correspondent there. And from New York, we'll be hearing from Ben McClanahan, the US Banking Editor. This week, we'll be discussing how geopolitical tensions have hit Russian banks, progress in the UK peer-to-peer lending sector, And we'll be looking at a US disruptor bank that has enjoyed rapid growth by offering checking accounts to millennials and middle-income households. So let's start with Russia and an interview we conducted recently with a top Russian banker and associate of President Vladimir Putin. Andrei Kostin, chief executive of VTB, the state-controlled bank that is Russia's second largest, told the FT that the madhouse in Washington was thwarting any chance of improvement in East-West relations for the foreseeable future. Mr. Costin sounded extremely frustrated about the low level of progress that's being made on any talks about lifting sanctions on some Russian companies, including his own bank, VTB. I think that the elite in Washington or bureaucrats, I mean, they are campaigning against Trump and this completely paralyzed his activity to do anything. You know, even to have any dialogue with Russia, Mr. Lavrov came to Trump and immediately appeared that Trump sold all the major secrets, you know, of the United States to Mr. Lavrov. Anybody who can speak with the Russian ambassador immediately committed treason, you know, so it's, it's absolutely impossible. So we don't even see how Trump can formulate the policy vis-a-vis Russia, you know. And that's why there's still no meeting, and probably it will take place in July, hopefully. But whether it can lead to any results, we don't know. That was Andre Kostin, who came to the FT recently. Joining me to discuss the interview with Mr Kostin is Max Seddon, the FT's Moscow correspondent. Max, tell us a bit about the context in which these comments by the VTB boss have been made. Well, I think VTB, uh, they've been under sanctions for almost three years now, and they're extremely pleased that they have more or less found found a way to adapt. Of all the Russian state banks, uh, the big three, they were the hardest hit because they always had the most global ambitions. VTB was born basically when Joseph Ackerman, who was 10 years ago the CEO of Deutsche Bank, he told Kostin that Russia could never be a great nation unless it had a great investment bank like Deutsche Bank. And so VTB was born in its current iteration as this globally ambitious player. But if you look at what they do now, last year there was a real moment of truth for them when they were the sole issuer of the Russian government's first sovereign euro bond, which was $3 billion, the first one that they had issued since 2013, a year before the sanctions. And at first, it was very bumpy running because they had to keep the sales open later to try and place even some of the Eurobond when they did it. And the clearinghouses didn't want to do it. 
But now, ever since a few months after the initial placement, Euroclear agreed to place the bond. Now they are getting ready to do another one that's going to be more than twice as large. The finance ministry says they want to do $7 billion this year, and it doesn't look like there's any problem for it. Russian bonds have the highest yield of any bonds on emerging markets right now. Everyone is crazy about Russian bonds. So despite three years of sanctions, VTB's financial performance is pretty strong. But politically and strategically, you could sense the frustration in some of the comments from Mr. Kostin. Do you think that his comments reflect a growing impatience in Moscow politically and in the financial community there with the way that Donald Trump is struggling to make much headway? I think there's a certain sense of a buyer's remorse not just among VTP, but in my conversations with them last year, they were among Donald Trump's earliest fans in Russia. And I think that Russia as a country, whatever exactly it did to interfere with the U.S. election, which remember, we really don't know the full extent of that and what exactly was going on. Clearly, it has had more of a knock-on effect than they've realized. And it's got to the point where it's not just paralyzing the stated desire of both Putin and Trump to restore relations, but it's also paralyzing the White House in general, as Trump is just firefighting scandal after scandal after scandal every day. So there is this notion that question voices in the interview where he says he didn't think that there was that much that was going to necessarily come out of it. And a lot of people have said this to me, that Trump may be president of America, but that means he still has to act out of the interests of America foremost, not Russia. But I don't think anyone in Russia saw things exploding to the same level that they are at at the moment with the U.S. It's become very toxic for Russian state bankers, especially with all these bizarre rumors going around that Trump himself may have some sort of exposure to Russian state banks. Yeah, we asked him about that and whether there was any links between Russian finance and the US president that he knew about. And he said, no, absolute rubbish. Mr. Trump, I think, I mean, it's ridiculous because nobody knew Mr. Trump in Russia mainly only as a Trump Tower, and that's it. And uh, frankly, even myself, who is in business, and we heard that there was some problem of his business in Trump House. He went bankrupt or not bankrupt, that's it. I think he came to Russia mainly on a beauty contest or something. Yeah. He knows some people in this area, some singers, or nobody never worked with, with Trump. I mean, I don't know. I, I would be very much surprised if it's appeared that he has some connections. Very much surprised. Max, what's your view on that? I asked the deputy about that a few months ago, and he fell out of his chair laughing at the notion nothing is impossible at this stage, but we need to see the evidence. It would be very extraordinary, obviously, from a political perspective foremost, but also the idea, it's one thing that Russian oligarchs you know, were buying real estate, some of which was Trump-branded or, or buying it for Trump, but there really isn't much of a record of Russian state banks lending that much money in the States to real estate anyway, and this isn't something that they have a track record of doing. Final question, Max, for you is about the Ukraine, which has been a headache for Mr. Kostin and VTB. They own one of the larger banks in Ukraine. And given the situation there, the conflict that's ongoing, the anti-Russian sentiment in much of the country, he was quite clear that he's trying to sell it, but is being frustrated by the Ukrainian central bank, which doesn't want him to sell it, according to him. And so he's threatening now to shut the thing down. What do you make of that? Well, it really shows you the struggles of the bank foremost, because Sparebank, Russia's largest state bank, they already reached a deal pretty quickly once it looked like there was no way back for Russian state banks in Ukraine. 
to sell it to some private actors. They're waiting for that to go through. And it's remarkable that under the previous head of Ukraine State Bank, Natalia Gwintereva, she is an old friend of question number two, Yuri Solovyov, who's from Ukraine. There's even some information in the Panama Papers from last year about their families doing business together. The issue about whether they managed to find a buyer for the asset or not is still up in the air. But certainly the whole thing has become so politicized. And in Ukraine, we're already starting to see, as the president's approval ratings go down, there are a lot more knee-jerk, patriotic things coming out of Kiev to score points, like when they banned all Russian social media last week. And they've uh, imposed sanctions on the Russian banks as well, haven't they? Their own, their own set yes, of sanctions. Yes, they have. The DTP's bank was struggling anyway, and he'd been trying for a very long time to find someone to buy it. Obviously, the political environment has made everything much worse, but it's the same as when you look at DTP's performance in Russia. They are doing much better than they were during the two years of the recession, and they're on track to double their profit this year, which is Question's main goal. But this isn't the first time that the VTB has needed the state to bail them out. They are still heavily reliant on state support, and they're going to be, for the immediate future at least, and then they're going to make a lot more money, be completely self-sufficient. Max Seddon, thanks very much for joining us. Switching from Russia and geopolitical tensions to the UK peer-to-peer lending scene. Emma Dunkley, you're here to tell us about how one of the UK's biggest peer-to-peer lenders, Ratesetter, has just raised some £13 million. The latest sign of progress, isn't it? Indeed. So it's raised £13 million of new equity capital from its existing investors, which include quite high-profile names such as Neil Woodford and his investment fund management boutique and also Artemis Investment Management. And it's a sign of the industry maturing. Ratesetter says it will use this new equity capital for its next phase of scale-up growth and put it towards the launch of its innovative ISA, which the industry is now finally working to launch after, I think, more than a year of delays, essentially. And this will allow investors to lend money to companies and other individuals via a peer-to-peer platform but within a tax-free wrapper, which really does open up this investment product to the masses. Joining me now to discuss this on the line is uh, Ridian Lewis, co-founder and chief executive of Ratesetter. Ridian, tell us what this means for Ratesetter and the money you've raised, how that, uh, how that fits in with your strategic plan. This is fresh investment to continue to scale up our business we are anticipating being able to launch an ISA in the coming months and the business will grow with that. And in terms of investment, the key element is to scale up in our chosen borrower markets. So what we mean by that is we're trying to become a mainstream player in consumer finance and commercial finance and we are in the process of scaling up in those areas. Sure. Now, an ISA is a tax-free wrapper for savers that you can launch, but only once you've won approval from the regulator as part of the UK regulator's move to bring the peer-to-peer industry under its tutelage for the first time. And you're still awaiting that, even though some of your rivals have already won approval. How close are you to achieving that and what's holding it up? We can't say exactly how close because no timelines are given in these processes and therefore it's very difficult to give a sort of clear answer. But we believe that we are very close to the completion of our process. We have great visibility on the process because we've been involved in it for many months and we're frankly pleased to see that the process of authorising peer-to-peer lending is occurring and 
you know, we expect to be authorised soon. And in terms of your growth, are you still growing at high double-digit rates? Give us a progress update on that, if you can. Yes, I mean, the business is about 20 or 30, about 25% bigger than it was this time last year. So these are still very healthy growth rates. The emphasis at rate setter in the last 12 months has, if I may say, been as much about quality as it is quantity. And this is borne out in some of the figures that we're releasing in terms of the performance of our lending, for example. So we are convinced that the most important thing for these platforms is to show track record through cycles and that the quality of your volume as much as the quantity is important. Equally, Ratesetter and all of the peer-to-peer lending platforms continue to need to grow in order to get the scale to compete with banks and asset managers. And so it's a delicate balance. I would characterize the last 12 months as much about consolidation and quality as it is about quantity, though. But, you know, stepping away, this business is still 25% larger than it was last year. So if you put that in the context of other financial services businesses, this is a very healthy growth rate. And your latest round of fundraising values you at over £200 million. When I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago about the appointment of Paul Manduka as chairman of Ratesetter, you talked about your hopes that his appointment could help you prepare for an eventual initial public offering and a listing of the company. Do you think this round of £13 million of private fundraising, do you think that'll be the last private fundraising you do before an an IPO? Or do you think there could be further rounds? Our hopes to go public are now public themselves. (laughs) We're not in a position to talk about timing yet. But as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we think that as a business focused on the retail investor, it would be very healthy for Ratesetter to be a public business. And we think that you can use the stock market to be an engine of growth. And there has been a trend in the last five or 10 or perhaps a little longer years of businesses getting much bigger in the private arena. And in a way, the public market has been seen as a form of exit our view is that it can still be used as an engine of growth. So obviously one can't give any certain answers to that, but the view is that any subsequent capital raise, the assumption would be that would be in the public markets, not the private markets now. Right. So probably your last private round of fundraising. Okay, brilliant. Thanks very much for joining us. Really good to hear from you, and we'll track your progress as it continues. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. So Emma, Ratesetter is still waiting for the approval that will allow them to launch their ISA product, which as Rydian said is a key part of their growth strategy. Rivals like Funding Circle and Zopa have both achieved that milestone. What's the sort of significance of these moves for the European peer-to-peer sector? It's quite important in terms of giving the peer-to-peer sector a seal of approval as it shows that these quite new platforms have undergone a rigorous regulatory assessment. There's also been some criticism of the sector in the past few months. For example, Lord Adair Turner at the end of last year raised some concerns over the underwriting standards that are employed by some of these platforms, especially when lending to small businesses. It's also worth highlighting that the Financial Conduct Authority even aired some concerns earlier this year about some of their business models, in particular the provision fund that some of them use, which is essentially a pool of cash that's used almost like an insurance pot So if any of the borrowers default, then investors will get their money back via this provision fund. But the FCA suggested that this actually masks the true performance of some of the loans. 
And it also could be a sign of mis-selling insofar as it makes lending look as safe as deposits, Mm. which are protected by the financial services compensation scheme. So there are still some issues to be worked through. So I think in that sense, the financial conduct authorities move to regulate the sector is quite key in terms of proving the robust business models and giving them that seal of approval. Thanks, Emma. Now switching to the US, where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been speaking to Loveleen Sidhu, president and co-founder of Bank Mobile, the New York headquartered online bank. So Loveleen, thank you very much for joining me. You've raced to 1.7 million customers in, what, a little over two years? Correct. How have you done that? That's extraordinary growth. For us, we've really pursued two different strategies. One is a direct-to-consumer strategy where you can find our platform in the Google Play Store and the iOS Store. It's a mobile-first strategy. And two, where we've really seen our volume really grow is through our B2B2C strategy. So today, we actually have a relationship with 800 colleges and universities across the country. Um, And it's through these college relationships where we have the opportunity to open bank accounts for students. And it's through that channel where we have really grown and we're at the 1.7 million accounts today, putting us in the top 15 banks likely in the country. And we have a really attractive demographic with an average age of about 27. So a lot of room to grow with these customers over their lifetime. How have you managed to pick up these people from campuses? Don't they walk down the street and attempted to open an account at Wells Fargo? Yeah, so about 25-30% of our student base were their first banking relationship. And we've really found a way to get into the right point of their life where they actually get to choose us for a bank account. Mm-hmm. So it's been a great way to really tap into the university through the contracts that we have with these campuses and universities. Could you describe the mechanism through which they choose you? Sure. What we've developed, we're really a fintech company that happens to have a bank charter. So what does that mean? Today we're offering technologies to these 800 campuses and universities that lets them distribute any form of money between the school and the students. And typically, this is the form of a financial aid refund. So these students actually are on financial aid. Their financial aid is applied to tuition. A small amount is typically left over that they're going to spend on their books, their living expenses, their food. And we provide the technology and the compliance and the reporting around it, saving these colleges about $250,000 a year to help them really distribute this money. And in return, these college university students get to choose our bank account as one of the options to receive the money. And so at the moment, you're offering deposit accounts. Correct. Uh, What's next? What's next in the product suite? So for us, it's really important that we want to have true checking account relationships with our customers. And what does that mean to us is that they're paycheck is coming into this account because that's a true sticky relationship that's going to stay through life. In addition to the checking account relationship, we offer savings accounts, joint accounts, a line of credit that we actually guarantee to any of our students that have passed our onboarding process because it's so robust that we really believe in the authentication process and we're comfortable enough to be able to extend credit to help them build but that credit. people without credit histories, right? The yeah. Credit scores, if it matters, they're probably pretty low. Exactly. So our students, in fact, have pretty fair credit scores coming into school, which is not atypical for a student. And they tell us that one of their biggest financial pain points is that 
their credit starved. Mm -hmm. And so we have an opportunity over this two to four year period to really help sort of rehabilitate their credit, both through education and then also gamifying it. So we've created a financial fitness score that really rewards them for good financial behavior and then also underwrite on that credit score once they graduate to help them build that credit by extending credit to them when others may be more hesitant to do so. And just quickly on your um, P&L, Mm-hmm. Your revenues don't come from interest income so much as interchange fees, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, so we 70% of our fee revenue is really coming from interchange. And that's what we get when someone swipes their debit card or swipes their credit card. We get a good percentage of that. And we're in a business today where there's actually a regulatory arbitrage that exists in the U.S. And I really believe in a free marketplace, so it's not that I'm promoting this, but since it exists today, you know, we, we are taking advantage of it. We are a bank that's under $10 billion in assets, and we get about five times more in interchange revenue than a bank that's over $10 billion in assets. So it really helps that our primary revenue driver is interchange. So this was a consequence of the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, exactly. where the, the bigger banks were seen to present more of a menace so that they were punished? Yeah, in a way. So it's thought of as sort of the Walmart amendment. So you had retailers sort of complaining that why are they paying these big bad banks all this revenue from when their customers are swiping their debit card? And then you had the community banks sort of saying, hey, we want to be protected and we want to still get the revenue from the merchant. So I think it was a balance between being able to listen to the retailers and protect them, but also protect the community banks in the U.S., which the U.S. really cherishes. And that's how we've been able to sort of leverage this amendment. And your parents' company is bumping up against that $10 billion limit. So you can just talk us through this, this sale process you, you've currently gone through. Sure. So our parent company, Customers Bank, is at about $9.9 billion in assets. So that sort of regulatory arbitrage is losing out soon for us. So we have an opportunity. We have a deal that's announced with Flagship Community Bank based in Clearwater, Florida. It's a small bank with about $100 million in assets, giving us a huge opportunity to continue our growth once we combine forces with them. So we're expecting to execute that deal over the next six months or so, giving us a lot of opportunity to reach that $10 billion mark going forward and, and bringing that you can think of it as a reverse merger. We're renaming the company Bank Mobile and continuing operations as is. And mm-hmm. Teams coming over. And finally, the big banks that have noticed 1.7 million people mm-hmm. uh, cropping up on your customer list. How are they responding? Are they ramping up their efforts to attract the kind of people that you're attracting? Yeah, I think that they always have tried, but the struggle has been they haven't been able to profitably serve low middle income Americans and, and, and millennials. They're low balanced customers. And the way that you really can profitably serve them is if you can get your cost structure under control. And so for us, being a completely digital bank, and number two, finding a customer acquisition strategy, uh, really that's enabled through our contracts with colleges and universities, we're acquiring these customers at $10 or less because the colleges actually pay us. So when you take that into consideration, our customer acquisition cost is zero versus traditional banks at the $300 to $500 range for acquiring these customers. So it takes them years to be profitable in serving this segment. So are they sleeping? I don't think so. They're noticing us. And I really hope down the line that we could be an attractive acquisition for some of the bigger banks. Mm -hmm. But that's several years down the track, is it? Yeah, I think we have a lot of opportunity to grow. Our mission is really to make banking as effortless as possible by having the best technology, and then also keeping our cost structure low to make it the most affordable banking experience. And we're so excited to have the opportunity to serve millennials and the low and middle income Americans that really deserve it the most.
Lovely and Sidhu. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Emma, Max, Ben and Ridian for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Lauren Leatherby. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.